When thousands of people are in pursuit of the same goal that only allows a small fraction in, it creates a mindset that is dangerous as much as it is common. Welcome to the Sports Psychology Of. I'm Gabe Zellico. Today we're talking about the starving artist mentality. Also known as the scarcity mindset, it's a pattern of behavior and thoughts that everyone recognizes in some capacity. For those in the performing arts, it's a feeling of needing to be perfect at all times. Essentially, this shows up in performers neglecting self-care as they prioritize gaining an edge over their competition in every way possible. The irony? Behaviors and thoughts brought on by this mindset end up hurting a person's ability to perform consistently near their potential, leading to a vicious cycle. I'm joined by Demi Agaibi, a mental performance consultant and founding director of Beyond Horizons Performance. With over 20 years of commercial and concert dance training and a master's degree in sport and exercise psychology, Demi believes in integrating psychological skills training and mental wellness into all performance spaces. Demi is determined to support athletes and performers in achieving their goals while building confidence and resilience. Enjoy. So Demi, what got you into sports psychology or what helps you appreciate the mental side of performing? Mm -hmm. So way back when, um, when I was in college, I was a double major in dance and psychology. And I sat down with my freshman professor at the time. And she asked me like what my goals were. And I said, I want to be a psychologist for dancers. And she looked at me and she was like, huh, interesting. I know we need that, but I'm not sure it exists. (laughs) And, you know, as a freshman, I was sitting there like, okay, (laughs) like, well, that's what I want to do. And so I just really had this like, I don't know, eagerness and like curiosity of how I could combine those two pursuits. And it wasn't until like I started um, getting into like the depth of the psychology courses in undergrad. And then I was applying them naturally to like my trajectory um, in my dance major. So I was going through a lot of injury. There was a lot of toxic competition, um, comparison, perfectionism, burnout, all of those things. And so I found myself naturally digging into that material and applying it to my real life. And I was able to do that so sequentially that people started noticing and people started coming to me for guidance and advice and leadership roles and et cetera. And it wasn't until somebody pointed this out to me that they're like, Hey, Demi, you know, you're really good at this. And like, it's because you just have this gift. And I was like, huh, never knew that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. And then I quite literally, when it was my senior year of college, stumbled upon sports psychology, like in a Google search, I was like, Oh, game changer. Like, this is for me. Like, this is exactly what I wanted to do. Right. So, um, that was kind of like the, like gateway or the like process that led me to sports psychology. And it just seemed so intuitive for me to give back to not only the performing arts community, but like also, you know, learn more about sport. I was really fascinated by sport um, and dig into the psychological aspects of both of those. Another patient zero story where you start using the stuff for yourself and you realize how is not everyone doing this? Yeah. And then similar to me, I 
so I was a bit younger when I just saw the words sports psychology and I, and I just looked at it and was like, wait, this is a thing. And I've been on this path ever since. So, uh, cool. yeah, it's a cool moment when you realize this is an actual field and yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're talking about a different kind of performance domain today in dance and performing. So obviously there's a ton that we can get into in this domain, but specifically where you are going to talk about the starving artist mentality. So to start us off, can you explain what that is? The starving artist mentality is essentially that there is no other way to achieve my goals other than to work as much as I can, give myself as little self-care as possible and um, decrease my social connection, my social networks, my social relationships and Ne- um, neglect my personal self-care and overall development in pursuit of that overall goal, because that's the thing that you're chasing, right? So generally speaking, that's what um, the, well, it's very related to scarcity mindset, right? So, but the um, starving artist mentality is essentially scarcity mindset. And I imagine people that fall into this mindset think this is like a prerequisite to success, whereas maybe it's not. And and we can talk about how this develops, but it, it would probably be like paradoxical to think you have to be, you know, neglecting self-care and friends and suffer this much to be successful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, so many people like go into the field hearing it right away. I mean, as, as young as maybe even high school, or it's like, you have to sacrifice. You can't do this. You can't do that. You have to focus on this. Like you're going to have to make these sacrifices in order to achieve these goals. And so right off the bat, what essentially you're doing is you're narrowing their identity, right? Instead of building that composite identity, you're having them fall into identity foreclosure. And so at a young age, like performers and dancers are already hearing that information. And so it's sticking with them and they're thinking, oh, if this is what I need to do in order to succeed, well, then don't I want to succeed? Okay. I'm going to do those things. I'm going to sacrifice those things. So it's definitely something that like, it's culturally like just brought up. Right. And we're trying and we're working on dismantling it. Um, but it's definitely really still prevalent. And I can't help, but think someone who did this where they neglected a lot of these important things. And then let's just say they succeeded in some capacity. I get the feeling that they don't want the next generation to think they can do it without all that suffering that they want to be like, all right, the person who did suffer wants to think that didn't go to waste. So now they want to kind of be like, oh, well, I already, I already did my time. Now you have to do yours. Whereas no, you don't actually have to do it this way. So again, there's a lot of pieces of the culture component that's probably play into this. Yeah, I, and this is one where it's, oh, it rustles my feathers because yes, there are people who, you know, they have successful careers and they grew up in this, you know, starving artist mentality and they lived through it and then they got out to the other side, right? So now they're in this position where they're the leaders and they're the figures and they're saying, well, it's one of two, one of two boats, right? The one boat is saying, if I had to do it, you have to do it. There's no other way, right? And when there's excuses of like, I'm using air quotes, excuses of like, oh, self-care and stress management. They're like, well, I didn't have those resources. Why should you? And look at me. Look how far I came. I was still successful. Right. So that's one camp. One one boat is like, yeah, no, that's not a thing. It's not it's never going to be a thing because I didn't have it. So why should you? And then the other camp and the other boat is like, actually, like, I regret a lot of that process. I regret 
you know, sacrificing those things. And yes, I got to where I wanted to be, but by much too much sacrifice that it affected me negatively. Right. And, and detrimentally impacted my overall mental wellness and health. And so like that camp of people is like, okay, yes, let's encourage people to pursue careers in the arts and like, let's also encourage them to not throw away their life, other parts of their life. Yeah. I think that would be the first place. Obviously we're not going to have the biggest impact. This is a very wide, very broad issue, but the people that are looked at as they are the ones that these young aspiring performers want to be like, those yeah. people are, are in the best positions to influence the the culture around this this idea. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we there's probably there's a lot more that we can talk about with culture, but let's talk about maybe some other factors that you can think of that impact someone that move them into this starving artist mentality. So maybe just talking about mindset in general. So maybe kind of uh, not talking about the culture part, but how can someone's mindset maybe push them in a direction that leads them to this mentality or what type of mindset might help someone be resistant to fall into this trap? Mm, okay. So right off the bat, I mean, like any performance craft that you're pursuing, there's a lot of time, money, and energy that goes into it. And while there is, you know, this pursuit towards goals and and whatnot, there, wow, it's really hard to not talk about culture here. I'm not going to lie. I think it is very cultural and environment dependent. In like uh, framing the mindset, basically, that culture, you just can't separate it. Mm-hmm. Because I could walk into an organization that works hard, values hard work, um, and also values, you know, overall wellness and their overall identities outside of those four walls, right? I could also walk into an organization where it's the complete opposite and it's extremely toxic. I think if I'm talking about one thing that really drives the scarcity mentality is that there is so few positions available, right? So it's like in order for me to get a principal role in the ballet, well, how many principal roles are there? One, okay. Now that means like, that's my one shot. Okay, I have, that's it. That's only one. So what do I need to do? I constantly need to work hard. There can never be a flaw. So maybe falling into like perfectionism um, because there is that only one shot, right? And then speaking like in terms of, um like toxic competition, then it's like, not only is there only one spot available for me, but there are a hundred other women of the same caliber, or if not better than I am looking to reach that one spot. Right. So the scarcity mentality comes into play when you're, when you're also talking about the larger scheme of like the arts, um, and how, how scarce the, the positions are, how, how little they're, opportunities there are for us, um, to perform and to do the things that we love. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, that's probably, if I'm speaking more of the mindset, it's like, well, if this is the thing I want to do, and then, you know, there's only X amount of spots there. Well, I I have to, you know, I really have to work hard in order to get the spots and I have to beat the competition. It sounds like some of this is, I mean, these are real issues that aren't like, you can't really 
change the issue and it's a big one that is going to lead people to a mm -hmm. perfectionistic mindset because if they know that there's maybe i don't know tons of people fighting for one job then they yeah. un they it makes total sense that they'll go down this path of thinking they have to be perfect and one mistake is just going to make uh the person look over them let's talk about the self-talk that that basically comes up as a result of all these conditions the culture what type of self-talk do you see in your clients and how do you maybe improve that self-talk? Do you have any go-to tips and yeah, maybe can, we can just take it from there. Yeah. So one thing that as it relates to mindset is that I try to dismantle with my clients is that there is more to life than performance. And even when I'm speaking to athletes, right, that's something that I still work on because there are so many things more specific to athletes, it's a little bit different, right? But there's an internalized pressure that comes with that one singular goal, that one outcome goal, right? So something that I help them, you know, to reshift their uh, mindset is to help them focus on the process. And we create process goals or um, process-based goals. Um, and that helps them orient them and their work towards the journey as opposed to the destination. And so really harping on this idea of like, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon and really enjoying that process and every challenge and every obstacle that comes their way. Like it's something that is a learning opportunity. So a lot of like using self-talk is like, this is a learning opportunity. This challenge is an opportunity for me to present X, Y, Z skill. Um, I am capable of working through this and, and coming out on the other side and being triumphant, right? So like having that perspective of like, okay, let's take away the pressure of that overall goal. Let's focus on the process. And then in that process, let's like cram your brain with a ton of positive self-talk that you are capable of working through every hill and valley and that there's some enjoyment in that, right? So then it also comes down to like your why and making sure that your self-talk is in line with your why of like, okay, I'm doing this because fill in the blank. I am going through this really difficult season in my life. And it's, I know it's going to be a push season, but I'm doing it because blah, 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 blah. And having that like really clear vision so that you can really push through. Um, and also like, again, celebrating that, like being able to look back and to see, I went through that whole entire journey and it was not you know, for a loss, I gained so much from that and being able to have that reflective mindset and then celebrating. So I think like to sum it up, the three things that I really work on with my clients is that understanding of the process, reframing their mindset to that, celebrating those in-between moments, and then, you know, reaffirming their ability to use that process as a way to navigate through life um, and as a learning opportunity. And it seems like these are all under the umbrella of reframing when you catch yourself thinking I'm having really just bad self-talk. It's damaging my self-esteem, my confidence, my focus. And then it's all about catching that and then going to any of these buckets of, okay, well, let me just replace this thought. I'm not trying to push it out and totally eliminate it, but I'm just replacing it for now with self-talk right. that's based on the process. That's based on my why that's trying to get me to enjoy myself more because that's how I got into this. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I imagine self-talk is one of the biggest things in this, I mean, we're talking about a mentality here and that mentality yeah. is the thing that's damaging self-talk in a lot of different ways and all the time. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, one of the most important tools any performer and athlete can learn is how to kind of get their voice in their head on their team and not make them an opponent all the time. Someone. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think like too, with the toxic competition where you can get really in your head of like, I'm not good as so-and-so and I'll never be able to make it because I don't have this skill or like, you know, so-and-so knows so many people and you could just like beat yourself up and, and really get, you know, that like negative self-talk and just overwhelm you. So it takes 10 times more positive self-talk to combat that, you know, that negative self-talk. Yeah. And, and something that's always tied into this is first of all, the awareness before you can yeah. even start yes. improving the self-talk. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. So how do you, is it, is there like a separate exercise or how do you help your clients train that awareness piece so that they can get into the, the importance of reframing. Yeah. I think honestly, the most important thing for me is listening. Um, when I'm able to hear about the way that they're interpreting an experience, I'm able to kind of tell, okay, where are they coming from here? What is their mindset? What is going on in their head? Right. And if I have questions, I clarify like, Hey, I feel as though this is where you're coming from is that, is that how you're feeling? Is that resonating with you? Right. And they'll elaborate on that. Right. But I think like the most active tool for me is that listening, because you can learn a lot from how they're interpreting that experience and how aware they are. Right. And then like probing a little bit more of like, okay, like, let's see, like, okay, what if I ask this question? Can I get a little bit more from you? Right. But ultimately they know their experiences. It's just giving them and um, prompting the correct questions for them to do that on their own, right? So, um, and definitely a skill, right? Um, but if there's a way that I can facilitate that, then I'm gonna, you know, definitely do that. I think with these conversations that are very important to help the performers kind of improve their awareness of themselves and how they think, there has to be trust in the conversation based on who they're talking to. So if you're a coach or a parent, you can definitely do the same thing and help them so much by getting them to understand and helping you understand what's going on that might be having a significant mental impact on them. But again, that could blow up in someone's face if there's no trust. If there's like a coach or a parent talking about like trying to get, uh, you know, these probing questions that might be sensitive to someone, uh, there's a there's a time and a place for that. So do you, do you find actually that coaches and parents in this, uh, in this world are doing that effectively, or are they like, maybe where are they in the sports psych world? Are they kind of on this self-care? Like let's take care of the mental side of performing or are they, um, are they doing well overall? What's your take? I will say it's gotten better. Um, thank you, COVID. I feel like (laughs) in, in so many ways now we're like, Oh, thanks COVID. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think we're getting better. However, a reality that I am consistently facing is that even though there is more of an awareness and maybe there is like a neat, like there's more of a just like explicit need for this, um, the resources and the financial resources are not there to support, right? So we're coming into like where it's like we're ramming into one another. We have one problem where it's like we need to focus on self-care, mental wellness and mental strength. That is a priority that needs to be, you know, really focused on. And then the other side is like, okay, well, you need money. And it's like, great. Those are the two things that we don't have, right? Um, and that's like a whole different topic, right? But that's where it's like, you're kind of in a position where, and again, that's where scarcity mindset comes in because it's like, there isn't a lot of money out there for the arts, right? 
there isn't a lot out there. Um, and so when it's time to, you know, invest in something that might be beneficial for your performers, it's like, okay, this is a risk. This is something that's like, we may not be able to do this thing, right? Even though we see it as a need, the reality is we, we might not be able to. So. Yeah. I think it always comes down to priorities. Like, like if someone says they don't have time to do this, it's really like, no, they're not prioritizing it in their schedule. And yeah, yeah, for the money side, I'm not even like blaming anyone, but sometimes you have barely enough to even have like the fee to get into a competition. So how are you going to be hiring your own sports psychologist and you have a private coach? So maybe you can suggest anything that people on a budget can do to still work on their mental game? Do you have like a, a resource of some kind? Because obviously the private coaching is going to be quite difficult and more expensive mm-hmm. than, or that's like the mm-hmm. top of it. So um, any, anything for, for someone on a budget? Yeah. I mean, like this is the thing with me and, and, and my, the way that I work is I'm just here to help, you know? So I have a plethora of free resources and free workbooks that if you're just curious, if you're just like, huh, I want to learn a little bit more, like that's where you can dive in and just kind of take that as your own and use it as your own. Um, My podcast is definitely a great opportunity, right? Performers on the Rise, check it out. Um, A great opportunity for you to take that time on your own and really curate that knowledge. and just, you know, become a little bit more acquainted with the the concepts and whatnot. Um, and then I think, you know, having people in your corner that are like-minded will do wonders because even though you might not be able to invest in that larger, you know, big picture item, you can still find similar support in people who are like-minded and you never know, you might find somebody that's, you know, it's like so-and-so has a connection with so-and-so and it's like, oh, hey, you guys should just chat over coffee, right? Like, I think something that's so like underappreciated is just like coffee chats, right? There's so much benefit that can be had from just like a conversation and and it's it's free, right? You just got to pay for a coffee, four bucks now, maybe even five, which <laughs> I guess yeah, that's a lot, but like, um. Yeah, I, I think it also depends on like who you're surrounding your yourself with. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just like books and podcasts, it is incredible how much knowledge you can learn from from those uh, by just kind of surrounding yourself with that knowledge. And and yeah, the conversations, I, I think that's a great point of basically going to the support system. And we can talk about that more in detail later. But that can be it doesn't have to be someone who's like maybe a coach. It can just be someone who who basically can help hear you on what you're going through, the struggles, maybe they have a suggestion or just listening to you can be massive in its own mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about something maybe unexpected from listeners in this episode. Sure. I want to talk about possible pros and cons to this mentality, because I think it's clear that there are cons to this because it's very stressful to live inside of this starving artist mentality. But I also like to play devil's advocate wherever I can. So mm-hmm. Let's talk about any pros this might actually bring, and then we can go back through some some of the the main cons. So I imagine this could end up helping motivation. If you are in this mindset of like, gosh, I need to be perfect. I need to sacrifice everything to fulfill my dreams. You're probably going to be more motivated to actually make something out of that, all these sacrifices. Um, Now, again, I can totally see this killing motivation too, because you don't have like, the buffer of your support system and all these other things. But 
Do you also, do you agree with that or disagree where this mindset might actually boost motivation in some cases? Yeah, no, I do think that in a way it has this weird workaround way of, um, instilling this grittiness in us. Um, and I think that's something that's so valuable, whether you're an athlete or a performer, it doesn't matter. You know, grit is a mental skill. Um, I think that is the one thing that as artists we have nailed, (laughs) um, you know, like we don't have much to our disposal. And so we will do it by any means and find a way by any means. And I think, you know, when you're really committed to what you want to do and there's, there's only a few paths to do it, you will make a way you will, you will do the thing. Um, and that like the really like the ability to like be resourceful and, um, just, yeah, just the grittiness is so, is so there. Um, yeah, so kind of put be a pro. Yeah. yeah, I imagine it just pushes you to put certain things into action, reach out for certain resources that you wouldn't have thought of or wanted yeah. to do or prioritize. But now you're kind of in a spot of like, hey, I have to do this. And and just like how sports can build so much character, uh, this can also build character in maybe not the healthiest ways. But it's also, again, one of those things of like seeing what you're getting out of this and noticing that you are building these admirable traits although not through the best ways and it's very stressful there is that can take kind of the some of the burden off of maybe Mm -hmm. your day-to-day of knowing like hey I'm I'm doing the hard work and not everyone can do this yeah yeah and I also think too I mean there there's so many different aspects of the arts that's like I don't know I know I know people that started a dance company with you know 500 bucks in their account. And then just were like, okay, let's apply for this grant and do the thing. And I think it's inspired by the process naturally in dance, right? When we're in dance, what are we doing? We're creating movement. What are we creating movement from? Nothing, (laughs) right? Like we, we are relying on our internal awareness. We're relying on our, your, our, like our kinesthetic spatial awareness, right. To create something we're relying on music to inform us. Right. So we're, we're using things to inform us, but at the end of the day, we are creating something from nothing. And so I think we're used to that process of like, look, uh, four weeks ago, we didn't have anything. We didn't have a piece. We didn't have a routine. We didn't have a dance, like whatever it may be. Right. We didn't have it. Now we have the thing. How did that happen? I don't know, right? Like it's hard work, it's creativity, it's that grittiness. And so when you're brought up in that in that kind of mindset and in that environment, you're almost like predisposed to be like, well, I'm used to creating something from nothing. I might as well just do do the same thing and continue on. Not feeling like you need a jumping off point to do something and to get into right. action. You're just right. going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. very self self driven and motivated. Yeah. yeah. What about pride and satisfaction? I imagine there's a lot of pride when you are just going through a, a crappy day-to-day lifestyle of trying to make it work. And there might I just imagine there's satisfaction and pride you can feel in sacrificing things you do want, like time and then time with friends. There might be a satisfaction of like saying, hey, I'm doing what I need to and I'm sacrificing, 
to pursue my dream. I'm actually doing it rather than all the people that might give up on it. Is is that maybe something you've seen in this type of artist? Yeah, there's a lot of ego. I think, um, and that's where the toxic competition comes in. Where, and I will, I will say this to my dying day, but this toxic competition is probably one of the most horrible things for the arts. Um, I think it's killing us more than, you know, the money aspect or the financial aspect. Um, again, it all goes back to like, yeah, there isn't a lot of spots available and whatever. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of ego. There's a lot of like, why, well, if I'm doing this, then I should get this right. Or if I'm doing the work, like, look how much work I'm putting in and you only did this. And, you know, the comparison of like, and I know this person and you don't know that person. So then therefore I should get it. And I have this degree and you don't have a degree, but I was training here. And it's like, oh my God, you guys just be quiet. Like it's so, it's so much. Um, so yeah, I know you're, you're a spot on. There's a lot of ego. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's like, maybe it feels good of like the ego being inflated by sacrificing all this, but it could, um, yes. it could come out in talk to- in toxic ways. Yes, definitely. Oh yeah, for sure. Do you imagine that someone in like the starving artist mentality is also more creative as a result of all the suffering? Oh, this is a tough one. I want to say yes. I'm hesitant uh, slightly because there might be a way in which your you, the way that you're pursuing your path kills creativity, right? Because you're so focused on that outcome goal that you're not able to take risks and then engage in that like vulnerability that is required in creativity. But then again, as performers, we are creative, right? So I don't know, that's, that's something that I've never really thought about, but I think there's, I think the both, I think the two can exist. I think, yeah, I think the two is possible. I mean, such a good point of if you are not in a position where you feel like you can take a risk, that is that can kill creativity. Absolutely. But I've also found that a lot of artists are doing their best work when they're not feeling their best at all. So uh, Mm -hmm. obviously, yeah, so many other variables in that. But interesting thing to think about that maybe someone's best work does come when they're not happy with their day to day and lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I could see that for sure. Definitely. So let's talk about the the real cons about this, that it's very clear outweigh the pros of being in this mindset. And what I first go to that we were actually just talking about is what I call the setback cycle. And this happens when you're in a stressful state and it's basically just CBT of yep. what you think is going to impact your emotions, emotions impact behavior. All of this is a cycle. So the worse you feel, the worse you perform, the worse you perform, the worse you feel. And this is a cycle that I imagine is a common result of this mindset where you are not in a place to be your best. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what, what do you have to say about that kind of cycle? Yeah. So I think something that I really resonated with me when you said that was the fact of like internalized pressure, right? So if you don't perform well, therefore I am a bad human, right? Bad performance equals bad human. And that's because of that internalized pressure of achieving that outcome. And that's something that, oh my goodness. I'm like, look, you guys, we have to, we have to get beyond that. <laughs> we have to. Like it's it's just, there's a lot of identity work that has to go into that, right? But it's it's still pulling away 
the the focal point of that that goal and being like hey let's reel you in for a bit because like it's not the end all be all if you fall out of a turn right and then like you'll see them beat themselves up they'll walk through the rest of their day being like oh i can't believe i fell out of that turn and it was 0.2 seconds of your of your day you know and it's it's just that internalized pressure of that you know, I have to perform well, I have to perform perfectly and everything is riding on this single moment. And when the reality is that it's not (laughs) right, there are many opportunities for you to learn and to explore and to showcase your efforts and your talents. So yeah. And you touched on this other con of obviously this stuff seeps into life outside of your performances in in so many ways, especially if you are pushing other things from your life that aren't in your performance domain away. So Mm -hmm. just another con of like, this is not just making you likely a worse performer. This is making you just an unhappier human overall. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're not able to see the beauty of life outside of, you know, the dance studio walls. And I mean, I'm I'm just going to be a little bit transparent about what I noticed, especially, and this is not, I'm not saying that this is, you know, across the whole United States or the whole world. Right. But I was noticing in my immediate kind of dance circle and dance network, I would peek into like a rehearsal just through the window and they looked awful. They just were, it looked like they didn't want to be there. Right. And I would even walk into a class and I'm like excited to be there. And it seems as though no one wants to be there. And I'm like, wait a second, this is something that you signed up for. Like, this is something that like, this is a voluntarily thing, like, especially if it's a dropping class. Right. And then like on the opposite end, when I'm peeping into a rehearsal, I'm just looking through the window. Like those are the people that quote unquote made it right. Those are the people that have that company position. Those are the people that have that principal role. And then I'm looking at them and I'm like, they don't seem that happy. Something's not right here, right? Because then we're like, they're burnt out. They got to where they wanted to be, but look at how much they sacrificed. Look at how much they're torn apart internally. And now look how they're showing up, right? Like they can't show up as their best self. So it's like such a, it just weighed on my heart so much where I was like, look, like this is not, And again, I'm not saying that this is across the board. This was like in my immediate circle that I was noticing this. Um, And I actually should say that when I traveled elsewhere, it was different depending on where you went, right? So I know that environment and like where you are definitely influences it, right? But it was something that I just really shook me to my core of like, those are the people that we're looking up to? Huh. Interesting. Not so and, sure I to be there. <laughs> and I'm sure you can assume that while you only kind of saw it in your own circle, that this is happening elsewhere very commonly. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because people talk about it. Yeah. When you said, when you mentioned the burnout aspect, which I imagine is, I mean, that's, that's really the first sign of this enjoyment mm-hmm. going down, downhill. Mm-hmm. Is it true that it's not an easy thing to take breaks in this world of performing arts, because if Uh, you take a break like a year off, I just imagine it is a lot more difficult to come back to this than maybe some sports where I I, I don't really know 
why that is, but I feel like it's correct. Is, is, am I right there? Oh my gosh, you, I'm so glad you brought this up. Yes. So, and this is where the traditional sport really varies or is differs from dance and performance is we don't have an off season. Um, so we run consistently throughout the year. Of course we have our breaks like around a holiday, but then ironically, Nutcracker is around a holiday, right? So if you're involved in a ballet or a larger production and it, you have a Nutcracker going on, right, it, it's going to be around the holidays. So even then, like, I don't even want to say across the board that the holidays is like a, a slight break because there is the opportunity that you you won't be on break. You'll be working your most. Um, but no, we uh, dancers do not have an off season. Um and I'm not sure how I quite feel about that. <laughs> um, I think that there's benefit to having time off. Uh, I also think there's benefit to having consistency, right? And so it's having finding that balance and being able to kind of figure out where that is. Uh, I have seen, you know, like if you're more in the um, studio spaces, so if you're in like high school and younger and you're training, um, we're seeing like competition season will start in September when school starts. And then you are going full force all the way up until June, which is where nationals are, when your national competition is. Then maybe around, you know, end of June, middle of June, you'll be like, okay, taking a slight break. You have July to recover. And then maybe August, you're still training in between then, right? So like, that's the thing about dance is like, even though you're off, you're still training um, in some capacity whether it's an intensive or a camp or like just on your own time, like you're, you're investing that off time into maintaining and, and progressing towards your, your goals. Um, so that's more of the like adolescent side of things. And then, you know, when you get into the pre-pro and pro, they have seasons in which they perform, right? So a company will have like their fall season. So it'll be like eight to 12 weeks of a season where it's like they're rehearsing every day. Um, and then they'll maybe have a week or two off and then they'll jump into their spring season. Here's the thing. And they're one to two weeks off. What are they doing? They're teaching. They're traveling to teach. They're judging at competitions. They're all maybe doing another dancing gig, right? So because they need, they can't have two weeks without pay, right? They can't have two weeks without like financial means. So they have to find it elsewhere. So really those two weeks that should be off, they're off doing other things and working themselves even more. So yes, there isn't a lot of time off for chances. <laughs> and I imagine this is a result of how competitive it is that nobody feels like yeah. they can spare more than a week or two of not really focusing on their craft because someone else will, someone else will, and we'll get, they'll get past. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's this like concept of like, if I take time off, um, I will lose what I, what the progress that I've made prior. Right. So, um, my professor or one of my professors in college, um, would say, you know, look, you don't need to dance over the summer right? Like you don't need to do a ton, a ton of dance, but at least get some movement in. And that was something that I really appreciated. Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually found my summers to be really nice when I was in college because I would go take class and I would, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. It was my own time. Um, 
but that idea of like, let's encourage movement outside of dance to work different muscle groups, find inspiration outside, right? Like all of those different things. And then you can come back and do the thing. And like, it's so like, you're not going to lose that tech, like technical progress that you made prior. Yeah. It takes one to two weeks to get you back to where you were, but I would rather have a, a nice, like full robust break than be burnt out by September. Let's talk action items. And what I want to start with is actually what you're just talking about is in these, when you feel like you could use a break, you feel like you're feeling signs of burnout and yep. you want to just basically maintain a healthy mindset. It makes sense that maybe you can take some type of break, but it's not a just fully, I'm not even going to think about my my craft for a week or two or a month. It's mm-hmm. be productive in a different way. Feel yes. like you're not like you're not going to get the guilt of not doing what you feel like you need to do. And at the same time, this can I mean, this can be improving you at the end of the day of like working different muscle groups. Maybe you're you're becoming a more well-rounded performer. So, yeah, maybe like a compromised break of something of like, hey, I'm going to give myself the care that I need, but I'm also still not going to be lazy or something like that. Yes. Yes. And I think that's something that like we also need to like separate is like taking a break does not equal laziness. Like a break can be productive. That is something that I say, like rest is productive. Um, and, and it's a mindset shift of like recognizing that you sitting on the couch and chatting with your family or playing with your dog or eating ice cream in the summertime, like, are you kidding? Like, those are the most precious moments of life. And that like, somehow we're still beating ourselves up of like, Oh, I should be taking a ballet class right now. It's like, what? <laughs> you and- know, it's a complete mindset shift. And how ironic is it that, I mean, there's no question that rest can lead you to be a better performer. Just like if you're going to study through the night, you're going to be worse than if you had gotten better sleep. And it's just so ironic that taking the rest and doing the things that athletes are scared is going to make them a worse performer and athlete is actually going to make them better. But they have reasons to think this might not work of like, oh, I'm not even thinking or doing things that I've been doing all this time. What if I lose it? Yeah, that fear... Mm-hmm. I totally get it. But um, that's why maybe you can start slow, right? Of like, all right, I'm going to just take, just do maybe like an hour less and focus that last hour somewhere else. So you can kind of feel like, how how is it to kind of split your energy in that way? Yeah. And I actually think that that's probably more just productive way to approach, you know, the whole self-care thing is like, yeah. it's a lifestyle. I would rather somebody say every single night, I'm going to dedicate my last hour of my evening to like me. If I want to read, if I want to stretch, if I want to um, watch a movie, if I want to, I don't know, like whatever, or an hour a day, doesn't have to be at night, an hour of designated me time. I would much rather hear, have somebody tell me that than for somebody to say, I'm taking two weeks off. Because actually, if we're speaking like in the larger general scope of like the world, America is really like, we just are really bad at that. We're really bad at like working, 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 taking two weeks off and then getting back to work and being like, oh my God, <laughs> like you know, and it's such a transition where as opposed it's to like so other true. parts of the world, yeah. yeah, other parts of the world don't do that where it's like, oh, I'm just taking like a three day weekend and it's like nothing. And it's like, that's normal for them. Right. So I think the more that we can um, have these little tiny tidbits of self-care or like prioritizing you and rest in your overall like lifestyle, the better off you are. And this reminds me of 
this takes me back to the identity piece where if you can actually take an hour of yourself, not as the dancer, the performer that you are, then yes. you're doing the things that are helping you become a more well-rounded person. And then that failure that is inevitable won't sting as much because you're understanding that it's not your whole life anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The more puzzle pieces you can put in of like, I am more than just a dancer. I am more than just a performer, the better. Yeah. So back to self-talk, this is going to be one of the biggest action items that you'll never feel like, ah, I did it. I mastered self-talk. It's always a work in progress. It's always something that you're refining and even changing up because sometimes some things don't work on a given day and you need Mm -hmm. to figure out ways you need to be your own best coach, which is what I like saying, where you can't wait for someone to motivate you or tell you something to feel better. You have to take that initiative Mm -hmm. and certain ways that I like suggesting people to improve their self-talk is again, once that awareness is there of saying, Oh, I'm talking to myself really ineffectively for no reason. That's when you reframe it in certain ways. And a couple ways that I love doing is talking to yourself like a friend would like, think about one of your best friends or your biggest supporters. What would they say to you? And they're probably being truthful and they're probably not being as critical. And then the other thing that's along the same lines that I've been using so much lately is Asking yourself, what would the objective or the neutral athlete or performer think right now? So a lot of times we get into that critical mindset, which is subjective. It's taking emotion way too much into it. And you're not really looking at the facts anymore. Like you said, one failure is not the end of your career. It's a it's a space where you can definitely learn, but you're going to have more opportunities. That's the objective take. That's the neutral take. I'm not getting too high or too low. So that right. can be, again, a really effective vehicle to quickly access better self-talk. Do you have any other go-tos that um, people can use for improving their self-talk? Use your name when you talk to yourself. Uh, The third person is really productive. Um, And that's because going off of what you're saying, it's like somebody else was talking to you, right? So um, I like to run. So when I run, I say, okay, Demi, push here. You know, and I I call myself like my name. Um, So the more that you can use your name when you're talking to yourself, you know, I know it's weird. It's a skill, right? Just practice it. You'll get better. Um, That's definitely something. And then I always like to uh, make a distinction between affirmations and self-talk, right? Because I think those two kind of get jumbled up. An affirmation, I want my clients to understand to be a really brief thing about themselves, but it has to be realistic and they have to believe it. Yes. Okay. It's brief. I am capable of doing blah, blah, blah. Great. Can you believe that? Great. I am capable. Self-talk is a little bit more developed. It's a little bit more because of my past ability to navigate through given scenario. I know that I will have the skills or I'll be able to go through this next journey. Right. So being able to like, really dig into like, okay, what is like the gold nuggets of who I am? How can I bring those to the surface? And then how can I use those when I talk to myself? That's like really like what I really harp on and, and being able to say like, you can use affirmations, just know that they're brief and they're not going to give you much. I am capable. I am strong. I am powerful. Okay, great. You're all those things. You could use those in a given moment. And also you can use a lot of other, um, like more robust self-talk statements. Yeah. I love that distinction. I haven't heard someone separate them before. If we were to lump those together, it might not, it might be doing a disservice to self-talk. So, and I love what you said about, you got to be realistic. 
that's when I find toxic positivity is happening when you are just saying things because they sound good or you've heard other people say them, but you don't even believe them. Not mm-hmm. only will that not help you, it's probably going to hurt you because you're lying to yourself and you're not even being authentic anymore. So yeah, don't feel like you need to lie to yourself in your self-talk or affirmations. That's when you get to that objective perspective and you can actually look at what's the truth and then you're not lying to yourself anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. So another action item is engaging that support network of yours that we were alluding to earlier and throughout this. There is just so much data about engaging your support and how it buffers the effects of stress that it has on your body physically and your mind mentally. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. and it's so crazy. I love learning this, this little tidbit that just the perception that you have people to go to, you got people in your corner can be as or more effective than actually going to them. Mm-hmm. So it's important if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, I don't really have someone that I feel like I can talk to. This is something you want to try and maybe change because Mm -hmm. that can have a massive impact on your day-to-day stressors. And when Mm -hmm. something is maybe bubbling up and getting intense, if you're trying to do this on your own, just with your own self-talk, you're going to run into a point where you can't do everything yourself. And that's Mm -hmm. when you might want to have some support. So what what can you speak to about the social support? Yeah, it's finding like-minded people. Um, and I think that requires in this space, it requires a lot of vulnerability. It requires a lot of courage because, you know, you might be internally struggling and in order to find that support network, you have to share that, right? Like no one is openly saying, Hey, I'm struggling with this. Right. Um, and it's not something that is going to be necessarily brought up by leaders, although we are getting better. So the more that you can try your best to, you know, find those pieces where you can be vulnerable and and can be courageous and sharing, even if it's with a friend of like, Hey, I'm really feeling this way. And you never know that other person could be feeling the exact same way. And something that I do all the time with when I'm giving workshops with athletes or performers is I have them submit like anonymous, um, things that they're maybe, I don't know, self-conscious about or things that they would want to ask me, but don't want to say in front of their peers. And then I categorize them. And I always find, I'm like, okay, huh, this is funny. 75% of you said something related to confidence. I'm like, what does that tell you? And they all look around the room. They're like, oh, I'm like, so you're all struggling with the same thing, but you don't want to tell, like, you don't want to share that with one another. I'm like, problem. Like, you know, like we're all here, we're all in the same boat. Like let's use that to our advantage. So like the more that you can kind of relinquish the ego and really be present and aware and honest, not think authentic where you are, the better. Let's talk about this last little action item. And we are never going to get rid of someone's perfectionism, but there are ways to manage it. So in managing perfectionism, it does go back to some self-talk and being, are you being realistic and objective with your expectations of yourself? Mm -hmm. Um, What, what else pops in your mind? Cause I know you've, you probably run into a lot of this. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have any go-to methods of helping someone just manage the effects of perfectionism that it has on their mindset? Yeah. The best way as it, in my, in my work is reframing it to be excellence um, because we are high achievers, every single one of us, and we want to achieve our goals, right? And perfectionism, you can still reach your goals without a perfectionistic mindset, right? So it's being like, I'm striving towards excellence. What does excellence look like? Being really explicit with what that excellence looks like on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis, 
and then celebrating when you meet those marks, right? So the more that you can recognize that you're on this journey towards excellence and that you're showing up consistently in ways that are your best self, the better. And that will help you kind of reframe and rework the perfectionism mindset. I love that tool so much. And especially because I use and teach something similar. And it's funny because yours is basically like, don't be perfect, be excellent, right? And the way I learned it is be good, not great. So it's kind of funny that there's a clear distinction between like some more traditional sports and the performing arts where there's a much, there's a higher expectation where you're perfect in the performing arts and in sports, it's like, no, you want to be great. Some people might not, might not go to perfect, like being perfect right away, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's a great way to just relieve the pressures a little bit right away. It's like, Hey, I don't have to be like the amount of people that succeed by being excellent or great or good or whatever, and not perfect. It's, Mm -hmm. it's all the time. It's constant. It's not this, this fantasy of, or it's not this other reality of where the people that succeed are perfect. It's, Mm -hmm. And again, oh man, social media is definitely playing into that where you're only seeing the best parts of other people. So you're actually imagining them as a perfect person. So actually that's a, that's probably a good thing to suggest of refine your social media, either the people you follow or how much you're going on when you're going on, because there is just no doubt that the mental crisis we're facing in performers and athletes and really everyone is just social media is just such a big part of that. So yeah. that is not something that people uh, should ignore. What What's your take on that social media though, feeding into perfectionism? Oh my gosh, it's so bad. It is so bad. I, uh, I always say like, I always try to bring them out of that. Yeah, like highlight real aspect of, you know, this person did how many turns in a row without stopping or this person has their leg up to whatever the sky and, they're seeing that and they're getting so intimidated and they're like, Oh, I don't know. Like, I just, you know, I'm, I'm so bad compared to her. I'm like, okay. What if you asked her to do one of your pieces? I, I don't think that those skills would translate. Right. And that's where it's like, everybody has their gifts. Don't necessarily think that they have it all because you could put them in your shoes and they might not be even able to measure up to where you are. Mm-hmm. Right. And I say that like when we're at competitions and like all of the dancers are backstage, like nervous because they're watching the the next dancers and they're like, oh, my God, they're so good. I'm like, ah, like that's relative. Like, you know, like put put them in a completely different genre. Are they still that good? Right. And that's where excellence comes into play. And it's like excellence is not the mastery of a single thing. Excellence is like mastery of several things, like mastery of like the ability to like jump between genres of styles or like modalities, like that's what excellence is. Right. And so, I mean, at least to me, so, you know, like when I'm trying to like reframe and help these dancers, it's like, Hey, like they might be good in that three minute piece that they've been rehearsing for 80 weeks. (laughs) (laughs) But like, let's say you put them in another space, like a classical ballet class. What do you think is going to happen? Right. And like bringing them to be like, Oh yeah, you're kind of right. I don't know, is, is, is more than enough to help them. Let's recap some of these action items that we went over. So first off, taking breaks, but also having a compromise between you are doing something productive still, but you're not necessarily going really hard in your training and beating yourself up and all this. So yep. just changing it up. And this could be a form of self-care where you are actually just doing different types of 
basically maintenance, taking care of your mental side, because that is still taking care of your ability to be a great performer. Mm-hmm. And then self-talk in all the ways. And we kind of talked about distance self-talk. So talking to yourself from another perspective, and that could be just talking to yourself by saying your own name. So it's like this distant other person of yours. It could be asking what the objective or the neutral person would say to you, or what would your best friend or best coach be talking to you about? That is a great way to just quickly improve your self-talk once you're aware of it being ineffective. Mm-hmm. And then next up, engaging your support. Whatever support you have, if there's people that you can confide in, it's important to become vulnerable and go through that uncomfortableness because I promise it will benefit you in the long run of feeling like you have support, you have people in your corner. It's when you can take it outside of your mind and take it into words, that's just problem solving in its own right of hearing it uh, Mm -hmm. from this nebulous cloud of anxiety to actual words and putting language to it. Mm -hmm. So Definitely reach out for support. And if you don't have anyone like that, maybe start talking to more people in your circle and figure out if maybe there is someone like that that you haven't talked to. And then lastly, managing perfectionism and reframing it as not how can I be perfect, but how can I be excellent today and throughout this year? And with that, I also encourage everyone to just take another look at their social media, that they're who they're following, their activity on it, because there's no doubt everybody knows it's playing into this problematic mindset of perfectionism take the initiative and kind of looking that over but anything you wanted to add no very well said perfect (laughs) well thank you so much for coming on this was great because again i have very little experience in this world and i think it's really important because like you've outlined in a lot of different ways the mental game is suffering in the performing arts and it's really important that sports psychology gets its foot in the door and yeah. it gets its whole body in the door, uh, no less. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. like what Definitely. you're doing. And please, can you tell us about your podcast that you have? Sure. Yeah. So I have a podcast called Performers on the Rise. And the reason I use performers is because a lot of the content that I talk about and the topics and the themes is like across domains. It's not dance specific. Um, a lot of these things can be used for dancers, musicians, actors, and athletes as well. So Performers on the Rise, you can find that on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. And I would highly encourage you to check out, um, since we've been talking about perfectionism, one of my most latest episodes, um, it's called, It's Time to Break Up with Perfectionism. And we get, I get into like a lot of detail on, on what we talked about. So that might be um, a good next step for our listeners. Perfect. And if people want to reach out to you or find you on social media, how can they do that? Yeah. Um, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at Beyond Horizons Performance. That's the name of my business. Um, and then I also have some freebies that go along with my podcast. So if you are like, hey, I would really like to look at those workbooks, um, just let me know. Send me a DM um, and I'll get you where you need to be. Perfect. And I'll have links for all that stuff in the description. Yeah. So Well, Demi, again, thank you for coming on and look forward to talking to you next time. All right. Thank you so much. Stay up to date with the podcast by following the Sports Psychology Of on your podcast platform and see short highlights from every episode on Instagram. If you want to start working on your mental game, try out one-on-one sports psychology coaching with me by visiting my website, zelicoperformance.com, and schedule a free intro call where we'll discuss your goals, obstacles to success, and determine if we'd be a good fit to move forward. You can also email me directly at gabriel at zelicoperformance.com regarding private coaching or the podcast. Links to social media, my website, and email are all in the description. Thank you for listening.